Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the National Treasure Hunt podcast, where the secret lies not only with Charlotte, but also with your co-hosts. I'm Aubrey. And I'm Emily. And we are here with you today to take a deep dive into a different aspect of the first National Treasure movie, much less on the history and on the the plot itself, but actually into the production side of things. Uh, A bit of a behind-the-scenes look from the perspective of the producing team, the director, you know, everything except for the casting, really, because we're going to get to that in another episode (laughs) in the future. Can I just say, um, I don't know about you, But when I was researching for this episode, I got a little annoyed. Why is that? So in our last episode, for anyone who's just joining us, our our episode number two was taking a look at the historical accuracy of different plot points in the film. And Emily and I really impressed ourselves, I think, with (laughs) the amount of truth behind the plot in this film. It's, I think, way more than people give it credit for. And when I was researching for this episode, I was watching a lot of cast interviews, and I just happened to find myself getting really frustrated with the actors for making so many comments like, oh, I really hope students aren't watching this movie in school, and we take a really loose definition of history, and ha 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 ha. (laughs) And I was like, dudes, come on. I mean, yeah, I can see on the surface level they definitely take a loose definition of history. But once you dig in a little bit to like the more detailed bits that you might not actually learn in a classroom, I think that the historical accuracies really are there. It's so true. I mean, I don't know. They just don't, they don't even give their, their writers enough credit. Right. (laughs) But anyway, whatever. I think anyone, this is really um, a subtle way of saying if you're interested in learning more, check out the second episode that we released just prior to yes. this one. I I know it was only episode two, but I venture a guess to say that it will always be one of my favorites. Oh, yeah. The process of creating it was absolutely fantastic. <laughs> the research, the recording, the major mess-ups on our part. Oh, yes. And Emily, as our audio editor, has had fun. It's been an absolute blast, let me tell you. <laughs> In any case, um, before we get started breaking down the behind the scenes of the first National Treasure movie, let's quickly remind everyone where they're going to find us, where they're going to find our show, both uh, in podcast land and on social media. You can find us on Spotify, SoundCloud, wherever you get your podcasts at National Treasure Hunt. And you can find us on Twitter at NT Hunt podcast so go ahead give us a follow for some more interesting information go and uh, like rate and review our podcast episodes on your podcasting platforms and just get involved in this community a little bit there is a pretty solid community of national treasure fans out there especially on social media i just feel the need to tell everyone that as we're recording this episode national treasure is playing on my tv it's like it was Um, meant to be It it truly is. It's very poetic. Um, I have this rule in my household, my personal household, as well as back home with my family, that when National Treasure is airing on any network, it is on the TV. That is also a rule in uh, my my household as well. 
This is why we're meant to, to produce this show. Sure. Um, but with that said, let's um, let's start this deep dive into the behind the scenes of this film. And be sure to send us any questions you have or if there are any tidbits that you've discovered throughout the years. I think a lot of what we're going to bring you today, you would be able to find from some very deep searches on your favorite internet search platform between interviews with cast members, articles, video clips, what have you. And so what we're really excited today is to put all of this in one place for you. So if we missed anything, feel free to, to share your fun facts with us as well. And so just to kick it off from the top, some very basic overhead information here. I just want to point out that the National Treasure movie, the first one, was released on November 19th, 2004. So 11-19 was the date. And there are some people out there that say this is a nod to the Knights of Templar, which was founded in 1119. So um, I haven't been able to confirm that this was done intentionally anywhere. So you get to decide whether this was a happy accident or intentional. Just a fun way to kick this off. I decide that it was intentional. There is no way that that could be a coincidence. Okay, well, Emily has spoken. Um, and, and something else about this movie that I think many people might know, it's definitely emulated itself in the future as we still look towards the long-awaited National Treasure 3. It took a long time for the team to write the final script for National Treasure 1. It said that the first version they came up with was very comedic, very silly, not based in reality, not very finessed, and they wanted to add more reality and more history to it. So nine writers were actually hired between the years 1999 and 2003 to get the plot right. And I just want to throw out there, Emily, that we were literal children when the movie oh, yeah. first started coming together. I was five. Yeah, that's crazy, isn't it? That's insane. And something else that I think was cool, we learned in our last episode, of course, that the treasure that is the crux of this film, the Templar treasure, is based on a, a real legend, at least, that exists in the world. And the director of the movie, John Turtletaub, thought that movies feel extra fake when the treasure at the end is so clearly fake. And so that's really where the inspiration for incorporating you know, a real legend came into play. So I think that's pretty fun. It, it really adds some gravitas to our assumption or our, our comments earlier that a lot of history was intentionally incorporated here. Oh, for sure. And one thing that I found when looking into this kind of stuff was that apparently the original cut of the movie was very long. Apparently it was about four hours long. Which, oh meant, which meant that they had to take a lot out. And that leaves me kind of questioning what was it that they took out? Because it seems like the plot is structured so well in, you know, the version of the movie that we see. All the clues lead to one another. They have a bunch, as we're going to talk about, a bunch of historical places that you see. So I really am wondering, was it more action scenes that were cut out? Or was it more you know, deeper dives into some of these historical things. And I'm left to think that it must have been just some extra dialogue and action scenes that were cut out because everything else seems so solid about this movie. Yeah, it fits together really well. That's so interesting. You know what's funny is I like to complain a lot these days that movies are too long. Like, do you ever go to the movies these days and you're like, I thought the movie was going to end 30 minutes ago? 
and then 15 <laughs> yeah. minutes ago and then five minutes ago <laughs> and here we are we're just ending now and it usually really drives me nuts but i love this movie so much that i would watch a four-hour cut oh i 100 percent would have taken a four-hour <laughs> version of this movie Oh my gosh. Okay, so with that in mind, let's start talking about how some of the production and the filming went here. One of the things that I find really interesting about film production is how teams can really adapt certain locations in the real world and interpret them as something completely different in the film, either because they can't film in the actual location or the actual location doesn't exist, what have you. And so One of the first scenes in the film uh, during our flashback in 1832 when Charles Carroll is trying to see Andrew Jackson at the White House actually isn't at the White House. You know, when he pulls up in front, that was actually filmed at um, the Daughters of the American Revolution Constitution Hall on D Street in Washington, D.C. I pass that all the time going to work, by the way. So knowing, oh, really? <laughs> yeah, knowing that, like, really adds something extra to my daily Some national treasure history as you as you pass along there. I mean, if you're if you're living or working in the D.C. area, it is literally everywhere. Um, <laughs> And another fun point from the flashbacks part of the movie, and I haven't been able to confirm this, but I did read that um, they used some B-roll from two movies, The Mummy and 300, for part of the origin story of the treasure. So mm. you can take that with a grain of salt. I would believe it, but I wasn't able to like double confirm it. But maybe, just... uh, maybe we'll have to go and watch The Mummy or 300 and see if we can uh, recognize some scenes. Uh, you know... Aubrey does not sound too into this idea. I'm willing to watch the mummy. Okay, you can do that. I'm not an action movie person, and you're going to see that later on when we talk more about some of these action parts of these films. Anyway, moving right along, we're going to go to one of Emily's favorite locations on set, which is, as she calls it, as you've heard, if you've watched... The Arctic Tundra. If you listen to our first episode, The Arctic Tundra. Yeah. So the, when we get to present day for the first time, we meet Nick Cage as Ben Gates and Riley and Ian and everyone else. We are in the Arctic Circle, theoretically, but that scene was actually filmed near Park City, Utah, which is a very common destination. The Four Corners states are very common destinations for movie production. I actually am working on a project in my job right now that I've been learning a lot about that. Um, <laughs> so this is very much work meets real life for me to to figure this out but apparently how did they make it look so much like the arctic tundra if it was in utah apparently all that snow that you saw was very real snow on the ground that had fallen um and but then when it gets to the actual interior of the charlotte the ship that was built that set was built inside of an industrial freezer in los angeles at the union ice company do you think it was actually that cold inside apparently it was so they had to wear like the jackets and stuff were for real yeah i mean i guess it helps with the method acting apparently it's just that's (laughs) some that's some dedication on the part of i think both the actors and the crew to really uh work in those conditions for sure and i think in those initial scenes in the quote-unquote arctic tundra are really where you start seeing immediately the roles that these characters are going to play. And so we're going to have a whole separate episode in the future on casting this movie. But Justin Bartha, who plays Riley, Riley, he really lets his comedic chops shine immediately in these initial scenes. And it's funny because this movie was Justin Bartha's really 
big break. In fact, he revealed fairly recently in 2017 on Stephen Colbert's show that he was nervous all of the time. Because, you know, being in a Bruckheimer, Nick Cage film was a big deal for someone who was really only in one movie prior to this. And apparently that movie was totally panned. Um, Yeah, I read that it wasn't. Yeah. Great. I don't know. I don't know much of anything about it. In fact, though, you know, the character of Riley wasn't supposed to have very many lines. Like he was very much the sidekick. But when they were testing the film before test audiences, those audiences absolutely loved him. So apparently, they had to go back and find a lot of extra scenes to incorporate with Riley actually having a more active, participatory speaking role. And don't we love them for doing that, guys? I think the movie would not have been the same without Riley playing as prominent of a role in it as he ended up playing. It's true. He does have some of the best lines. And I'm pretty sure if you wrote out all of his lines, at least 75% of them would make you laugh out loud. Oh, 100%. Those are some of my favorite lines in the entire film, as I'm, I think we've said in the probably <laughs> in the past two episodes. They're some of my favorite lines in the entire film. That's fair. Um, so something else that I read, and once again, to kind of keep it brief and not go too much into it, was that Justin put a lot of thought into his interpretation of the character. And he actually said that he tried to make his character very much like the audience. So in a way, he essentially wanted it to feel as though he were a member of the audience that just kind of got plucked out and kind of thrown into the situation, which in many respects was a situation that was a little over his head and had quite a lot of moving parts. So the entire time he was acting uh, in a way where his character was trying to just kind of stay afloat in the situation, Mm -hmm. which I think helped to make a lot of what he did uh, even funnier. Yeah, I could see that. I mean, he was always one step behind Ben and even Abigail once Abigail came into the picture. Except for um, that one part. Except, except for, for daylight saving time. Yes. Um, he actually has one of those moments in the second movie as well. But we're saving the second movie for our entire second season of this show. So I'm not even going to go any further. Yeah. <laughs> um, Back to what really kicks off the first movie, that is the part where Ian and his crew basically try to kill Ben and Riley the first time. They try to kill him a lot, as it turns out. But um, when they actually explode the Charlotte on set, they could obviously only film that in one take. So apparently it took seven cameras to get all of the footage for that scene. And how do you blow up a giant wooden boat, Emily? That's a great question. (laughs) You use 600 gallons of gasoline. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Do do we know if there was real gunpowder in, in the ship by any means? Recall that when they were inside of the ship, they weren't actually inside of the ship. They were in that freezer. Right? True, true. So okay, set fair. versus Utah. See, yeah, even <laughs> I'm getting confused. <laughs> <laughs> so as, as you can tell, though, I mean, so that was filmed in Utah. They weren't actually in the Arctic Circle, but they did do as much on-location filming as possible. Um, And I think that's really evident and really cool. You know, the production team felt it was just more realistic and a better experience for the viewer. Part of the production team was actually quoted as saying, you can't make a movie saying that history is real, that these events are real, and then fake the whole thing. Um, 
which I think is, is actually really commendable. Yeah, they took a lot of pride in the fact that they were shooting at all of these national monuments. So places like the archives, you see the Washington Monument. They're sitting on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, you know, the Library of Congress, etc. So it was all very intentional, even to the point where, again, take, for example, when Ben and Riley are discussing stealing the Declaration of Independence and they're sitting on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. Emily, I know you and I have talked about this before, being like, why did they have to go from the archives all the way to the Lincoln Memorial, which is a good walk as someone who has, as we've both done that walk, but as someone yes. who lives and works in D.C. now, that's a non-trivial walk. They could have discussed the whole plan en route to the Lincoln Memorial. So, you know, why didn't they, why didn't they just go to a cafe, your local Starbucks, whatever, to hash this out? Especially and- when it's a very public place to be having... Um- a conversation about stealing the Declaration of Independence. I mean, I guess you don't want to do that in a cafe like uh, like right by the National Archives anyway, because <laughs> that also would probably seem uh, a little sketchy. So I guess the Lincoln Memorial was a better uh, a better strategic uh, place. Sure, but I mean, but this was actually a conscious decision by the film team. You know, John Turtletaub actually said, or was quoted as saying, when you're making a decision about something honorable and difficult, why not do it in the shadow of Lincoln? You know, mm. so this was all a very conscious decision. It was meant to give it some gravitas. It was also meant to show some distinct national, some national treasures that we have here in D.C. <laughs> oh for lack of better terms. Uh, <laughs> some of these beautiful places that not everyone will get to see in their life. And so that was also part of the decision here. That was part of why they actually filmed at the Library of Congress as well, you know. Riley and Ben could have found all that information online, you know, same with the silence do good letters when we get to Philadelphia, but the production team wanted to show people some of these places that they may have never seen before. So, you know, they did use the Lincoln Memorial. Fun fact, that day that they shot at the Lincoln Memorial, the reflecting pool had been drained for maintenance. So all that, yeah, the water was added digitally. What? Um, Yeah. Wait, it looks so real. CGI, man. And, and, you know, they did use the main reading room at the Library of Congress at uh, the main building, the Jefferson building of that structure. Maybe a bit of Hollywood magic here. You do need a reader identification card, basically a Library of Congress library card to access that space. But I wouldn't be surprised if Ben Gates had one of these anyway. No, and I actually did some research, you know, when we went to D.C. Aubrey uh, a number of years ago, I was doing a little research into seeing if we could actually get into the main reading room of the Library of Congress. And one of the things that I came across was kind of an application, essentially, to Mm -hmm. get one of these, one of these library cards. So it seems like getting one of the library cards isn't super problematic. You just need a few days. I think you just need a few days notice. But Ben, as you mentioned, probably already had one on hand. Also, having toured the the place since, um, I'm pretty sure there are extra caveats to access the main reading room. Like, there are tons of side rooms that are, you know, more accessible to people with the library cards. Hmm. Um, but, you know, all of this, we go to, we, the reason we even go to the Library of Congress, of course, is to discuss how we could steal the declaration or why we can't. And it's interesting to note that Nick Cage was apparently really skeptical about the storyline just because he felt that stealing the declaration didn't really have a lot of believability to it. But he Fair. was re- 
No, it's it's super fair, and I don't think we give Nick Cage a lot of credit for a lot of things, but, you know, credit where credit is due. But apparently he was reassured because Jerry Bruckheimer is known for bringing on technical advisors that, as I've said before, make impossible things as possible as possible. And I know I keep saying that phrase, but, you know, it's trying to make the impossible seem plausible. Yeah. And one of the other things I read about Nick Cage in terms of his skepticism about stealing the Declaration of Independence was that that was actually one of the things that drew him to the character and intrigued him most about the character as well, was the idea Mm. that this man kind of had the audacity to steal the Declaration of Independence. (laughs) If anyone has the audacity, it's Nick Cage. Oh, for sure. (laughs) Um, So when we actually get to the, the part of stealing the Declaration, something I found really interesting was the fact that at the time that the movie started taking shape, recall we said that it was around 1999, the National Archives security system had been around since 1957. And it was apparently, let's just put it this way, the uh, sequence for the heist of stealing the declaration wouldn't have had to be all that complicated. But after, yeah, after 9-11, though, they totally overhauled the security system. And so, Mm. again, 9-11 happened between the time when the the writing started for this film and the time it was actually, the writing was completed and the filming was done. So the filmmakers had to totally overhaul their sequence of how to steal the declaration so they hired a cop who was an expert in breaking and entering to help them come up with a way to quote unquote steal it based on the security upgrades so that is to me wow so cool right they really did they really did the work to go in the fact that they hired someone who specializes in this kind of stuff just to make it seem more realistic See, it's a lot of credit here. You know, I really hope people listen to our show and then have just a newfound appreciation for this brilliant franchise. (laughs) Utterly brilliant. Anyway, of course, we can contrast this best lead plan with Ian and his henchmen. And so this is something I never actually noticed before, and I'm not sure I would notice it now, but if you do some reading online, apparently Ian and his henchmen, they're building all of their bombs and crazy materials to totally just strong-arm their way into taking the declaration. Apparently they're doing this at the Watergate complex, which is just a really, um, you know, clever nod to... American history as well. I actually walked by it one day. I um, I think it's, if I'm not mistaken, I'm very bad at geography, so correct me or, uh, you know, accept my apologies if I'm wrong, but it's not far from, like, Georgetown area um, and stuff like that. Um, I'll have to take your word for it. <laughs> anyway, um, the declaration heist, of course, occurs at the archives, uh, the National Archives, and all the exterior shots of the archives are obviously filmed in D.C., but for the heist itself, you know, that actually is filmed on a set. That, that makes they, sense. Yeah, because you can't just go, you know, shooting guns, whether they're, you know, blanks or whatever, in the actual National Archives building. But apparently it is said, and I think this is common knowledge, but I'll note it anyway, that both the first and second National Treasure movies resulted in an uptick in visitors at the real National Archives in D.C. We were two of those people. I was going to say, we we definitely, we added to that list. 
Definitely. Um, and something I always like to throw out, and this bothers me just a little bit, you know, when Riley is in the rotunda of the archives um, and he is shooting the laser at the sensors in the ar- in the declaration box to make the sensors go off to get the declaration actually moved to the preservation room, he had attached that laser, you might recall, to a video camera, like a camcorder, in the rotunda. And I don't know if this is a newer development in the you know past decade but if you go to the national archives today you cannot have cameras out in that rotunda area oh no Um, they actually say that potential flashes from the cameras might damage the documents yeah so they don't even let you like whip out your phone or anything like that because cameras so that's a little bit sad i was i remember when we visited him i was really disappointed that we couldn't take a picture with the declaration was kind of devastated. I remember that disappointment. But uh, we took plenty of pictures outside of the building, so that's fine. We'll share um, some of them with you. Yes. Yes, we will. At NT Hunt Podcast. So we talked a little bit in the beginning about how I'm not a big fan of action movies, but this movie is a little bit different. You know, it's considered an action film, but it's it's more than that. It's like an adventure film. And there's a there's one particular fact that the film team and even Nick Cage points to to really demonstrate that this is different than your traditional action film, which I think is kind of funny. And that's the fact that Ben Gates is doing the big action sequence. So, you know, the heist, getting shot at, etc., while wearing a tuxedo. You know, he's like running about <laughs> the archives. He's wearing a tux. It's very Looking very sharp. Exactly. It's a classy vibe. Um, and Cage himself thought that this aspect alone gave the scene more of a Cary Grant vibe, which I know you can appreciate him. Oh, for sure. I'm a big fan of old movies. And something else that I found is that uh, Bruckheimer actually wanted the film to be sort of on these along these lines, a throwback to North by Northwest or even Charade, where there are adventures and there's some action in these movies, but also the kind of main player in them is the witty dialogue that goes along with it. Mm. And I think that you can really, you get that, a sense for that in some of these big action sequences. Well, and the, you know, the witty dialogue is very evident. So they succeeded. They succeeded there. (laughs) Interestingly enough, when they were filming some scenes outside of the National Archives, for example, when Abigail is, you know, stalking across the street from the gala to Riley's van with, you know, it's a very iconic scene. You can see it's nighttime. You can see the Capitol building in the background. They actually shut down Pennsylvania Avenue to be able to film that scene, which is, you know, if you've been to D.C., that's kind of a kind of a big deal. Um (laughs) And, you know, part of that also is it leads into the big chase scene for this film, which is, you know, where Ian and co, you know, they have Abigail. She has what she thinks is the declaration. They're trying to take it from her. Nick Cage, sorry, Ben Gates (laughs) and Riley (laughs) are chasing them, trying to save Abigail. Um, Riley thinks they're also trying to save the declaration. Little does he know it's a fake. But, you know, basically... What I found really interesting here is that Nick Cage and Diane Kruger, Ben Gates and Abigail Chase, were doing most of their own stunts in this scene. So when you see them like hanging off of the vehicles during, yeah, they were like actually hanging off of the vehicles. But that chase scene, casual, absolutely. Um, But I should point out that that scene was filmed in Los Angeles and not in D.C. itself. I can see that that might have been a little hard to film in D.C., 
I mean, I can't, I can't think it would be entirely easy to film in LA either, but here we are. True, true. Um, <laughs> um, but also it, it was convenient at least because it turns out that Ben's apartment, you know, which we see not many seconds later raided by the FBI. Mm. It looks like this weird warehouse. It's, um, it's actually a building that exists in LA as well. It's called the Nate Starkman building and you might recognize it from Fast and Furious 4. Hmm. I do not, but maybe some of our listeners will. <laughs> um, so speaking of our actors, I'd also point out here, you know, as especially as we are finishing up our initial scenes in D.C. and we're about to head off to Philadelphia, that um, Diane Kruger had never been to D.C. or Philadelphia prior to shooting this film. Oh, wow. Really? Yeah, so she she said she spent a lot of time going to like the Smithsonian and stuff like that. Um, and I think all the actors have said that filming really gave them a better sense and a better appreciation for American history than they had previously. But yeah, it was her first her first visit. I mean, I guess that makes sense given that she, you know, grew up in Europe and whatnot. But that's that's cool that kind of she was able to be almost inaugurated into this kind of history uh, in a way while filming this movie. Yeah, no, I mean, that's that's amazing and like good for her. I'm a little jealous, um, <laughs> but OK. Apparently, so, I'm not a good enough uh, partner in crime to go visit things with. Aubrey wanted to be uh, doing it with Diane Kruger. OK, you know what? I, you know how starstruck I can get and how like celebrity happy I can be. <laughs> So, um, <laughs> so um, while we're on the subject, though, of heading off to Philly in the film, um, probably one of the most well-known filming points of this movie is that Ben's dad's house, so Patrick Gates's house, which, again, is supposed to be located in Philly, is actually a home located in Pasadena, California. This uh, house will reappear again in the second movie. It is not in Philly. But, okay, so now we are, you know, chronologically, we're in Philadelphia. We need to check out the Silence Do Good letters, which Ben's dad had donated to the Franklin Institute. They did film at the Franklin Institute. So Ooh. everything that you see there is super legit. However, as we mentioned, I believe in our first episode here, the Silence Do Good letter originals no longer exist. So they're not actually located there. So but, they just kind of used it as a scene to... Yeah, I guess it was sort of, you know, trying to incorporate as many historical cities as possible mm. um, and finding ways, you know, that was a, a decent way to incorporate Philadelphia. And we do see, an like, amazing chase scenes in Philly that show you, like, you know, old churches and city hall and other cool places. So they needed to get us to Philly, basically. <laughs> true, true. So when we're at the Franklin Institute, I find this really funny. The display cases that you see in the film where the do-good letters are, you know, supposedly located, those were just placed there for the film in the middle of this, you know, the rotunda where Ben Franklin's <laughs> statue is. Those cases, like, aren't there in real life. <laughs> That's so odd. I know. I mean, it's it's kind of funny. I guess we'd be a little disappointed if we went there for our national treasure hunt and didn't see those cases. But here we are. I mean, now um, we're prepared. It's true. We can't be disappointed because we know. Yes. While Riley's at the Franklin Institute, again, Ben and Abigail don't actually go there. They are um, buying new clothing at Urban Outfitters. They're spending um, some time together. They are. Some quality time. It, it advances Emily's favorite romantic plot line. They also filmed that scene in Pasadena that Urban mm -hmm. Outfitters is like well documented online as being in California. So they're just kind of off doing unimportant things while Riley's doing the actual grunt work here. Actually, Riley's having a child do the grunt work. <laughs> oh, 
whatever. From there, of course, we head over to two separate locations for our protagonists and our antagonists. Our antagonists are heading over to the Liberty Bell Center, and our protagonists are going to Independence Hall. Those, the vast majority of those scenes were also filmed on location. So something that many people confuse is the fact that the actors, so Nick Cage, Justin Bartha, and Diane Kruger, all speak so highly and are so impressed by the fact that they got to actually film in the belfry of Independence Hall and in the signing room of Independence Hall. That was all very legit. But the one thing that was not filmed there was the scene where Ben Gates is on the roof of Independence Hall carving out that brick to find the (laughs) ocular device. That was filmed at Knott's Berry Farm, uh, which I believe is in California, there's um, a per- basically a perfect replica of Independence Hall built there. Wow. So I guess, you know, when you're practically destroying or what would be destroying a federal yeah. property. <laughs> it, it, yeah, I think I think the shooting uh, at a slightly different location makes <laughs> makes sense for that one. And maybe it also had uh, something to do with the fact that, you know, you mentioned they got into the Belfry of Independence Hall. Apparently, there were a lot of restrictions, as you as you could imagine, to shoot at some of these historic landmarks. And they had to actually, I read that they had to make sure that their shooting of the movie didn't get in the way of people actually being able to see the landmarks. And they referenced the Liberty Bell here specifically. So while they're filming, they basically couldn't prevent tourists essentially from going and seeing the Liberty Bell. So I'd imagine that that would be uh, difficult to, to work with. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I can't even imagine. Now it's really making me think about how to be an extra in National yeah, Treasure we, 3. Yeah, we could have been, if only we had been on a field trip uh, to the Liberty Bell, we might've been able to be an extra in that scene. Well, just, you know, you're welcome for me now living in the DC area. When National Treasure 3 starts filming, God willing, we're just going to be everywhere on the National yeah. Wall. So. Well, and, and you're welcome for me living in the Philadelphia area, uh, where if they decide to shoot some more things that have to do with independence and the city of brotherly love, you know, I got your in right here, man. Got our bases covered. Mm-hmm. We've know, really set ourselves up very well for future national treasure hunts. We have. We have. I, you know, it actually wasn't intentional, but again, here we are. Um Okay, so speaking of Philly, City of Brotherly Love, there's a, a grand rooftop chase scene where the henchman Phil is, you know, chasing Nick Cage across the rooftops. Phil. That was a yeah, his name is Phil. Oh, okay. I Funny. just remember I remember Nick Cage saying, Okay, Phil. I was like, that's random. He has a name. Hmm. It's right before he tosses you know. him right before he tosses him the empty um poster. Poster tube. Poster tube, yeah. Yeah. Which is funny. So that was actually filmed, that chase in Philly. Um, So was the scene in Reading Terminal Market. So was the scene at Old Pine Street Church. You know, all of that running around. There's people who have done, like, the actual route online. And apparently the the chase would have been about a mile. But they get the geography a little wrong in that, like, where the two parties end up, they would have been nowhere near each other to meet back up at the end. (laughs) Oh, unfortunate. Um, but, you know, we'll take that if we get to see some of the beautiful views of City Hall and, you know, other cool places around the city. But, okay, from here, we are going to take a little jump to New York City, which is Funny the next... Jump. You know, well, I mean, it's the next place we spend the vast majority of our time because, you know, we went back to FBI custody and blah, 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 have to break Ben out of FBI custody and 
all that stuff. Um, which I, I don't know. That's the part that I forget about most because I'm just like, this is the least interesting part to me. Well, yeah, there's no like active treasure hunting. Exactly. And it's just Sadusky being Sadusky and being stupid. <laughs> so we're going to pretend that it didn't exist. I'm just kidding. We're just going to go to Trinity Church, <laughs> where we are filming, obviously, the end of this film. The exterior of Trinity Church, you know, it was filmed there. The interior, however, was filmed at the First Congregational Church of Los Angeles, which apparently is very a very common stand-in in many films. Oh. Um, yeah, so you've probably seen it before, whether or not you've realized it. I guess that would be a fun fact if you go to that church and just be yeah. like, hey, I've been in, you know, this movie. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, I've always been saying, you know, that I want to go out to L.A. and, like, look for celebrities. But um, maybe we should just go as part of our national treasure hunt now that we know there are so many locations they film there. Yeah, maybe. But here's a fun fact, talking about fun facts. So the crypt beneath Trinity Church in the movie um, was actually based on a real crypt beneath trinity church what <laughs> okay so not the big dumbwaiter system and caverns and treasure room and all that okay, that would be a bit much yeah no but apparently the production crew got to go you know scouting at, at trinity church and learning about the venue so they got to go look beneath the real church at this crypt where they found pathways and coffins and piles of bones so like all of that <sighs> that you see in the film you're like, oh, this is this is much, but nah, it's also kind of realistic. It turns wow. out. I mean, I know I made a joke uh, uh, last episode or so about how you know I don't know about your churches, but all of mine have creepy tunnel systems and <laughs> pathways beneath them. Apparently, some of them do. Yeah. So I mean, when it's that old, though, I True. mean, it sounds pretty cool to me. I don't think any you know normal people like us can go see it but such a bummer here we are of course all of those underground scenes though were filmed on sets um Makes not, sense. Su not surprisingly <laughs> there would have been a lot of uh, destruction of i feel like some pretty old stuff if they hadn't filmed that on sets that they built yeah that's the understatement of the century <laughs> <laughs> Something that I wanted to point out, so right after, you know, this, when we're in the all these underground scenes, of course, that's where we find the, the treasure itself. And Bruckheimer actually said that after a few versions of the script, the writers actually decided to include this actual treasure at the end of the movie. Apparently, up till that point, the movie was basically a story where finding and deciphering the map was more important than finding the treasure itself. And I think we can see some remnants of that, right, in the way that they do spend a lot of their time looking for the map and figuring out exactly how to read the map that's on the back of the Declaration of Independence. Yeah. Uh, but I think adding that treasure there was obviously a key point in the movie. And something else that Bruckheimer noted was that he was really interested in the idea of having kind of a world treasure so, for example, we see the scrolls from the library at Alexandria and some other things down there that weren't just part of United States history, but were part of world history. And he liked that idea of having this world treasure that was just found in America, which if we look back at kind of where the Knights of Templar come from and how the treasure moved around and stuff, it really makes a lot of sense that the treasure would have been from many places 
in the world and contain all these things here and that the last place it ended up was just America. So all the clues, Mm -hmm. you know, were centered around America. I thought Mm -hmm. that was pretty interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's another example of them tying things together, I think really well. Mm -hmm. Um, But your point is really well taken about the importance of the hunt as opposed to the treasure. I mean, they do the treasure justice at the end. It's incredible looking. And of course that's, you know, CGI amazingness. Right. But (laughs) But, you know, they it's it's beautiful. But if you look at even the timestamps on the movie, how much time we spend getting to the point of, you know, stealing the declaration and interpreting the declaration and all of that, it's like very top heavy, the movie, right? Mm-hmm. You know, um, which yeah, I think I guess once you find the treasure, you, you've you've found the treasure. Right. Yeah. So there's not yeah. there's not much else to do. I mean, to be fair, though, and we'll get into this in season two, but if you, you know, jumping ahead just a second here, in the second film, we find the treasure and then we have to escape the treasure room. True. You know? Where in so, this case, they just kind of were like, ah, stairs. Yes. And just went, went to the nice pair of stairs that were uh, sitting well, in the corner. And thank you for quoting Riley there because he's the character I really want to end on here. Um, just As one thing fun... should be. Yeah, for sure. I mean... And we end the film with him, too, in his red Ferrari. But it turns out that scene, this is a fun fact that I just want to close with to keep the mood light. (laughs) Apparently, Justin Bartha had reshoots for that final scene with the red Ferrari in front of Ben and Abigail's new house. Um, And without thinking, apparently it was, like, really hot. Um, It was, like, summer or something. And he shaved his head a week and a half before the reshoot. Um, and he, you know, and again, loop back to the beginning of this episode. This was his first big break. He was nervous the whole time. And now he thinks he's royally screwed everything up. Yeah. Poor, um, poor Riley slash Justin <laughs> Bartha. So that last scene, he was wearing a wig. What? Yeah. So he's, he says that he was afraid, like jumping into the car and, you know, rolling off into the sunset. <laughs> he was afraid that the wig was going to fly off. Yeah, <laughs> I honestly kind of wish that there were a blooper where that had happened because that's amazing. Also, c- cannot tell he's wearing a wig. May I just say the thought never occurred to me. So the fun thing about knowing all of the points that we talked about today, including that one, I think is the fact that you can watch the movie a little differently now. You know, it doesn't take away any appreciation for the film, but I think the more we uncover about the behind the scenes and the impetus for different pieces of the film you know if you've seen the film many times like we have this helps you to gain new layers of appreciation and just notice Mm -hmm. different things that you might not have noticed before so with that you know next time you watch the movie see if you can tell riley's wearing a wig in the last scene (laughs) just that if you're going to take away any point from this episode just take away the fact that riley was wearing a wig in the last scene only look for that no, no. Okay. Think about 600 gallons of gasoline to blow up the Charlotte. Think about shooting in a f- giant freezer. Yeah. Think about, think about the fact that that crypt at the bottom of Trinity Church is based on something real. Yeah. There's a lot, there's a lot here that we hope we were able to unpack today and, you know, add a little bit of lightheartedness to a film that likes to match its levity with some gravitas and some um, poignancy. That's, that's very well said, Aubrey. Thank you. Thank you so much. So 
I, uh, I think that just about does it for today's yeah. episode. We hope you enjoyed this look behind the scenes of National Treasure 1. On our next episode, we are going to be doing an interesting look at National Treasure versus the Da Vinci Code. So I know yes. this is something that Emily is very much looking forward to. So pumped about it, guys. We're going to have so much fun. So she loves the Da Vinci Code. I personally am a traditionalist. I'm very much, you know, the person. You can either like one or the other. So like Phantom of the Opera or Les Mis, National Treasure or Da Vinci Code. You know, these sorts of things. It's one or the other. Emily loves them both. So I'm really excited to take this look at where the films, and I guess the book for, for Da Vinci Code purposes, where there's comparing and contrasting plot points here and taking a deeper look at that. So just remember, you'll find our show, new episodes every other Wednesday, released at 12 p.m. Eastern time on any podcast platform that you like. So SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, you name it. And of course, social media. You can find us on Twitter at NT Hunt Podcast, where we're going to post some more updates about what's going on. We might post some pictures there like we talked about, but go ahead and give us a follow and feel free to, you know, tweet at us and tell us your thoughts about this episode. If there's anything that you think we missed or anything that you find particularly interesting. Awesome. So with that, I'm Aubrey. And I'm Emily. And thank you for joining us on our National Treasure Hunt. Mm-hmm.